The, uh, well, both the privilege and the challenge of being involved with men that society has elevated or elevated to celebrity status. And many of them, I think, if I mentioned their names, they'd be instantly recognizable. Um, their names and both their names and reputations. And uh, they were kind, they were gracious men when it came to the hand-clapping public. But unfortunately, some of them, if not most of them, were also uncaring and sensitive tyrants with regards to their own personal private relationships. And uh, as I think of some of these men, I was reminded of the words of Dag Hammarskjöld, who was a former Secretary General to the United Nations. He said this, he said, around a man who has been pushed into the limelight, a legend begins to grow as around a dead man. He goes, but a dead man is in no danger of yielding to the temptation to nourish his legend or accept its picture as reality. He says, I pity the man who falls in love with his image as it is drawn by public opinion during the honeymoon of publicity. And I thought it was an interesting quote because I have learned and Linda has learned through our experience that not only have we learned to pity the man, but we've also learned to pity someone even more. And that is the man's wife who lives behind the scenes. And uh, I don't know whether you're, you know, you can relate to from a business standpoint or whether it's uh, a person who's in leadership or some position of authority, but the same could be said and the same is true of most of our private relationships. You know, when you, when you ask the question, what does it take to make a person great? What does it take to, not just a person that's under the lights or in front of the cameras, but, you know, behind the scenes? What does it take to make someone just as charming and thoughtful at home as it does when they're out in public? And I think the answer is what we've been studying all along, and that's simply this. It takes grace. You know, grace is the oil that lessens the friction in all of our relationships. And up to this point, we've looked at grace from the standpoint of grace from God, the grace that frees us from the enslavement of sin that sets us free. We've seen grace from the standpoint of being able to disagree with one another in an agreeable fashion. Grace that's needed to forgive one another of, of hurts that we create and cause in one another's life. Grace that it takes to forget those hurts once we've experienced them. And uh, today what I want to take a look at, you know, is basically to take a look at grace as it relates to what, what, I, what I'd like to call the grace to face marital realities. You know, because if you stop and think about it, sometimes and quite often it's a lot easier to extend compassion and kindness and graciousness to people outside of our families. It's easier at church to extend grace to a person that you go to church with or maybe even a person that you work with or a person that you may play ball with or that's on a team or a person that you're in the ministry with. It's easy to extend grace and compassion to them. But oftentimes it's difficult to extend that same sense of compassion to your own spouse. And, uh, and that's really a challenge and it's something that we need to take a look at. I know more times than, than I want to remember... You know, even though Linda and I have been married 20 years, more times than I want to remember, grace didn't always flow in our household. And uh, many times, uh, it was my fault. You know, I was the dam that held up the grace. And, uh, and, and I learned from that, and we're continuing to learn from that. So as, as I speak this morning, and as we go through these principles that we'll look at, understand that I'm in no way saying I've got a handle on this. Uh, God is working with me, and thank God that, you know, His work is still in progress, and 
he who began a good work in me will perfect it till the day that Christ comes back. So, you know, there's hope for all of us. And uh, what I want to do is just to, to be able to identify with all of us that, you know what, it takes grace to face some marital realities. And uh, more often than not, it's our, you know, it tends to be our spouse who we overlook. And uh, the one that, you know, we don't think as much about as we should. And I heard a story not too long ago that kind of illustrates it, and I think that, that you'll appreciate it, but... It was a story of two men who were meeting together at their house, and they were, they were older men, and they'd been married for a number of years, and one guy had been married a long time, and he was telling his buddy about this place that they had eaten at dinner last, the, the night before. And he said, man, this is the best place that we had ever gone out to eat in all the years we've been married. This is the most fabulous place we've ever gone to eat. And went on to describe the food and how excellent it was and just everything that you can imagine. Then he started to talk about the service. And he goes, man, it was one of those places where it's like if you get little breadcrumbs on the table, they came over with a little fancy knife and they scraped it off. And if you got out to the bathroom, by the time you came back, your napkin was all folded and it was all nice and neat on your chair. And, you know, you, you turn around and look and your water, they filled it up. And he, this guy went on and on and on. And his buddy was all excited about it. He said, hey, where is this place? Well, I'd like to go sometime. He, and, and, he, and he couldn't remember, and he was just kind of struggling with it. He said, well, what's, that, what's that, that plant, you know, with the long green stem, and there's thorns on it, and there's a big red ball at the end of it. And his friend goes, a rose. He goes, yeah, that's it, that's it. And he turned, and he looked in the other room, and he yelled to his wife, hey, Rose, hey, Rose, what was the name of that place we ate at dinner last night? You know, it's kind of that way, you know what I mean? I mean, that, that oh, man. It's a nasty crowd. I just threw that out, see if you were awake. But the only thing I heard was all women going, oh, oh, Because the guys are sitting there going, well, what's the problem? See, they don't even get it, right? I mean, the guys are like, I don't get it. The gals got it, unfortunately. But, you know, we all know the problem, the problem of apathy in marriage. I mean, we've all seen it. And the question is, is there any hope for it? And uh, I think there is, and it all goes back to what we're going to talk about, and that is the grace to face marital realities. Uh, there's four of them that I want to talk about. We'll probably only talk about three of them today, and we'll, we'll look at the next one probably next time. But it uh, depends on how you respond. We may, <laughs> we may just get done with all of them real quick. But uh, if you've got your Bibles, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll take a look at uh, marital reality number one. Marital reality number one. And as you'll see as we go through these, it definitely requires grace. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to take a look at at least three realities today that require grace. And the first one is found in the first five verses, starting with verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 1. And we read this. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, lest Satan tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. So as you look at this, there are some things in context, but basically what I want to do is get across one thing. And that is marital reality number one that requires grace is that, you know what, marriage requires mutual unselfishness. 
In this particular context, it, it's followed up from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, deals with the whole subject of sexual immorality. Trying to please ourselves sexually in ways that are not pleasing to God. And so what he's saying is, in the first verse, he says, you know what, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. They wrote to him saying, hey, we got a problem here at this church, and that people are trying to please themselves in ways that we understand that God's not pleased with. And th there's rampant sexual immorality in the city of Corinth. And what they wrote to him was, isn't it a good idea that men and women just don't touch each other at all? And so Paul said, yeah, that is a good idea for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities and because of those desires, he's saying the solution is that each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. That's God's answer to that particular problem. So he goes on in that context to explain that, you know what, there's an unselfishness that needs to take place and it's going to require grace, but in a broader application or a broader context, what he's saying is that it goes beyond just sexual relationships and marriage. Mutual unselfishness goes a lot further than just in the area of physical intimacy. What he's encouraging is mutual unselfishness in every area. One of the most frustrating experiences and most heartbreaking experiences that you can ever go through in life is to watch the disintegration of your marriage or the disintegration of a marriage of friends of yours who you care a lot about. There is nothing that I've ever experienced in life that just tears my heart out more than that. It's devastating. It destroys people. Not only the husband and the wife, but it destroys the children. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys communities. It destroys nations when families fall apart. And there's nothing more tragic than to watch that take place. And I'm going to tell you from personal experience, and you tell me if this isn't true, at the center of every marriage that falls apart, you're going to find one or two very selfish people. Very selfish people. All the stuff that we hear in society, man, you know what, honey, I can't make you happy until I'm happy. And when my needs are met, then I'll be able to meet your needs. But I won't be able to do that until that takes place. I need time. I need space. I need my needs met. I need to, I need to you know, take care of myself. And then once I take care of myself, then I'll be able to take care of you. And the Bible says, you know what, that's a lie. That's not true at all. The reality of all of it is, as you look at these terms and you see the disintegration of, of families in our culture, is the reality that there's always one, if not more than one, there's two selfish people at the center of all of it. Think about it. How much more selfish can it be than to walk away from a spouse? How much more selfish can it be than to walk away from your children? How much more selfish is that? I mean, that's the reality of it. And that's what God's saying. And it takes grace to be able to work through these things. It requires mutual unselfishness. Look at the words that he uses. He says the husband should fulfill his what? Marital duty. It's a sense of duty and a sense of responsibility. You know, I, I can't help but to think that in our culture and our society, we use the term jury duty. You know, and most of us try to get out of it every way that we can. But the reality of it is, is that jury duty is a sense of responsibility for those of us who live in a free society where people will tend to, to judge one another, a jury by their peers, to be able to decide whether somebody is guilty or innocent of a charge against society. 
not just the charge against that individual, but when you look at the sensationalism of the OJ trial and things like that, there's something greater at stake as to whether or not Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman will, will, will have justice for what was done to them. But it goes much further than that. It goes to the start, broadest sense of society and culture, whether all of us will have justice when something has taken place that's so tragic in the life of another person. Because if it's not justice in that situation, why do you think it'll be just in your situation when you go through the same thing? It's to protect us from one another. And there's a sense of unselfishness that we've got to look at when he says it's our duty. It's your duty. It's your sense of responsibility to meet the needs of your spouse. And it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. He goes on and says, you know, he doesn't have authority. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband the same way. The New American Standard says it's, not, it's a matter of authority. We relinquish when we get married. We relinquish our authority over ourselves. We give those rights up. We're saying, I got my rights, man. Well, you know what? No, you don't. You no longer have your rights. When you decide to get married, you relinquish those rights to your spouse. And you need to understand that. When you say, I do, you not only say, I do, but you say, I did. I made a decision to relinquish my rights. It's no longer I anymore, but it's two of us. And I need to understand that. It's mutual unselfishness. You see the word deprive. Do not deprive each other. Don't deprive each other. What is do that person? It's like saying that you work for a company and you work all week and paydays the next week. And you are due your wages for the period in which you worked. God uses that term to say, don't deprive the worker of his wages. Don't take away what is rightfully his. And so what God is saying to each of us who are married is saying, look, you know what? You no longer have authority over yourself. You've relinquished that. And don't deprive your spouse of the need or needs that they have. You have a responsibility to meet those. And the last thing he says is, you know what? And if you decide not to meet that need, then you better communicate with one another why that is the case. We'll talk more about that in the, next, in the coming session, but you know what? The bottom line problem, as I see it in most marriages and most relationships, is poor communication. Poor communication skills, poor communication habits. There's a reality that you have a need, but you don't express what that need is. And so your spouse doesn't even know what the need is. You know, I tell my wife, we've been married 20 years, and, you know, sometimes you have a tendency to say, well, you should know by now what my need is. And I'm like, hey, you know what, we've been married 20 years. If I don't know by now, take a hint. You just tell me what it is. You know what I'm saying? Guys, hey, amen, they're gentlemen. Hey, man, hey, come on now. I mean, hey, write it down on a piece of paper. Give us a honey-do list. Make it clear, legible, you know, and even give us time elements that are involved there. Number one, do this. When do you want it done by? You know, give me a date. You know, and I'll wait till the last minute, but I guarantee you. <laughs> but that's all right. But we'll still get it done. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, if I don't know by now, I'm never going to figure it out. So he's saying, but mutual consent, it means you've got to talk to each other. You've got to communicate with each other. You've got a certain need. You need to express what that need is. And why? Because there's a danger. And we need to understand that danger. And it's a very real danger. And God is very clear to warn us on what that danger is. Look what he says. You need to, by mutual consent, you need to agree that, yeah, I, you know, for this period of time, we're not going to be able to meet that need in one another's life. But there's an agreement that takes place. 
And the reason that we're doing that is that we know maybe we need to pray about that. We need to seek God's guidance in that area of our, of our relationship and to see what God would have us to do. What's right before God in this area? And then, you know what, we better come back together again. Why? Because if you don't, Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see the very real problem that's here? When somebody is selfish in a relationship and they do not meet the need of their spouse, then Satan steps in and the door is blown wide open for temptation. And you know what's sad to me and what, what, what happens on a regular basis when you talk to somebody who's got involved in an extramarital affair, you know, they're in a relationship with someone other than their spouse. They never wanted to do it. I don't know too many people that I've ever met that say, you know what, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I always hear. It just happened. What do you mean just happened? How did it happen? I, you know, and then they start to, to, to evaluate their relationship. And they begin to realize, you know what, it's been going on for a long time. I've got certain needs that weren't being met. Maybe she has certain needs that I wasn't meeting and, and it was going on for a long period of time. We didn't really communicate what those needs were or maybe we did and we didn't really make the effort to meet those needs. We didn't think we were ser- they were serious. We didn't think that it was our responsibility. Whatever the reasoning is. And all of a sudden, the, the door just starts to get open and it starts to get open wider and wider. And then you meet somebody who comes along and says, hey, you know what? I got the same problem. And, and you know what? I think we can help each other in that area. And that's exactly what happens, and it's a pit that we fall into. And God warns us very clearly, hey, you know what? Wake up! Stop being so selfish, and you better go out of your way to meet the needs of your spouse, because someone else may come along and say, I'm your hero. But I'm not saying that's right. In fact, it isn't right at all. But what I'm saying is that that's truth. And that's what happens on a regular basis. And that's not to excuse that kind of behavior whatsoever because don't ever forget that what a man sows, he also reaps and there's consequences for wrong decisions and there's consequences for sin and sin is devastating and there's nothing good that comes out of it except what God can bring out of it. And so we need to understand, man, we need to be unselfish in our relationships with one another. That's what marriage is all about. You know... And and I want to also say this. There are times in our relationships with one another where our needs must be set aside because of the greater good of our spouse. And we've all learned that from experience. There's going to be times in our life where those needs can't be met by our spouse for whatever reason. It may be illness. It may be pregnancy. It may be after having a couple of children and depression that goes with some of those things. It may be physical changes that take place as we grow older. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It may be financial pressures and job pressures and stress and all kind of stuff that goes on in the world that we live in. And you know what? We could be sitting there demanding that you meet my need, you meet my need. But I want to ask you a question. Maybe you need to stop and just pray about it and say, God, am I being selfish at this point in my life? Where she's got to, he's got to meet my need. Maybe I need to meet that person's need. Honey, what can I do for you? Because it's obvious that there's something wrong in your life. Is there anything that I can do to help out? Hey, I'm here for you. And I'm not going to demand that you meet my needs at this point in time because obviously your needs are greater. See, mutual unselfishness is two people that have come together and they say, you know what? We are going to be committed to outgiving one another. And we're not going to keep track of it. And it's none of this 50-50 stuff and all this kind of garbage that you read about. It means that, you know what, i got to give 100% to my wife all the time. And hopefully she's giving 100% back to me all the time. And we are challenging each other to outgive one another to meet the needs in our life. 
And yet I realize that, you know what, it all isn't going to be that way. There are times where you're going to be the one that's given, 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 and you feel like you're getting nothing back in return. But God says, hey, you don't worry about it, because that's a sweet-smelling aroma before the sight of God and in His nose, and it's well-pleasing, and you just keep doing what's right before God, and He'll take care of your needs. Because there ain't anybody that can meet our innermost needs like God can. You know what I'm saying? So we need to understand that. And let me just give you a little warning. If you're single and you tend to be selfish or the type of person that clings to your own rights or the type of person that uh, doesn't like to share with other people, can I just make a little suggestion for you? Don't get married. <laughs> right? Hey, do us all a favor. Messes up the whole institution. It does. It's like, you know, oh, see, marriage doesn't work. Well, it's not God's fault it doesn't work. It's a great institution. It was one of the first ones he ever instituted. The reality of all this is you're a selfish person. Don't get married. But if you like to share and you like to meet the needs of another person and you like, you like give a give a give and you like to keep on giving, then you go ahead and get married because you're going to have plenty of chance to do that. But that's what it means. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, God, am I being selfish? Sometimes we need to, you know... Ask other people that we're, you know, accountable to and friends that we have that love the Lord and love His Word and say, you know what, this is what I'm going through in my life. Am I being selfish at this point? They'll set you straight. Is there something I need to do? We need to communicate those needs. But marriage requires mutual unselfishness and that's why you need a whole bunch of grace to be able to make it work out. And all the people who've been married a long time said, right on, brother. Oh, well, amen. I can't get an amen. I mean, I thought I'd do a, well, whatever. That's all right. You know what? If it doesn't come natural, just don't do it. Right? Amen. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks. All right. All right. I hear you. Number two, marriage means a lifelong commitment. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 13. I like this. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. And I'll explain that as we go along. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband not, must not divorce his wife. And to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. And let me explain that to you. You know what? Basically what Paul is saying is, you know, Jesus, while he was here on earth, never dealt with the issues that we're talking about here specifically. But Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is in the Word of God, so it is as authoritative, but he's making a point. And what I love about this is the, is, the, is the genuine honesty and truthfulness of all of this. Paul wasn't saying, you know what, well, when I was with Jesus, he said, make sure I say this. See, there's none of that stuff that goes on. He just says, it's, it's, you know, Jesus never said it, but I'm saying it, and that's okay, because the Spirit of God is controlling and inspiring what he's writing, so it's just as authoritative. So that just helps you to understand, well, is this an optional thing? <laughs> no, it's not. So anyway, he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. The point is very simple, and that's this. When we marry... We marry for life. And that's a marital reality that will certainly require a whole bunch of grace. Because it's permanent. You can't change your mind. God says it's for this cause, speaking of marriage, that a man should leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. It's permanent. Two people coming together 
and being glued together. Literally means being glued together. You know, I've done many weddings, and you've probably been to many of them, and you've seen the, you know, the, the bridegroom do the, the uh, unity candle thing. Okay, you've got two candles on both ends that are lit, and then you've got one in the middle that's unlit, and at that point in time in the ceremony, they come together, they pick up each of the candles, and a bride and a groom, and they put those two candles together, and they're two flesh, they become one. There's not two people in the eyes of God, there's only one. And the reality of what's being said and the symbolism of all of it is is that what God has joined together, let man separate for the purpose that if you try to take two things together that are glued together and separate it, you destroy it. If you've ever had two pieces of lumber and you've tried to glue it together or two pieces of wood and you've glued it together and you try to pull it apart afterwards, guess what? It never breaks on the seam that you glued. Wherever the weakest point is, it'll fracture and fragment it and, se and separate it and it destroys it. That's why when people get divorced, there's always someone who is totally destroyed. Because they're just ripped apart and they're in fragments now. God's saying that, that marriage is a lifetime commitment. Now, I, say, I like this because it means you're glued together. So if you're married here today and your spouse is with you, you just turn to him or her and you say, Honey, this is great news. You're stuck with me. That's it. You are stuck with me forever. It's permanent. This is great. You're, we're stuck together. That's not an optional thing. You know, and look at this. I mean, I don't know how many times it takes to, to stress this, but it's like, hey, a wife must not separate from her husband. Boom. Okay? A husband must not divorce his wife. Boom. Hey, if anyone has an unbelieving spouse that chooses to remain, must not be divorced. Boom. If a woman has a husband who's not a believer, boom. I mean, it's like four times... I don't care how dense you are, and I don't care what kind of gymnastics you're doing here, folks, but the point is very clear. There's only three exceptions in Scripture to end a marriage. One is sexual immorality, of which God still says that, you know what, but that still can be forgiven, and it takes a whole bunch of grace to do it, but God's not beyond being able to repair that situation. The second is the desertion of a spouse by an unbelieving spouse. Let's say you've got two people who are not Christians when they get married. One comes to know the Lord, and the unbelieving spouse says, you know what, I'm not going the direction that you're going. I'm leaving you, and they decide to leave. Hey, well, you know what, it's better that they stay together if they want to, but if one chooses to leave, then you know, he can't control that, and that's the way that it goes. And then the third exception is death. That's it. There's no more, so don't even look for any more. That's it. Uh, save a whole bunch of time and trouble. Those are the only three exceptions. And I know some of you are thinking, but you got a little asterisk. But i got a different one for you. My needs aren't being met. No, no, we already dealt with that. But, I mean, you look at that, and those are the only three things. So if you consider this, now, here, now this is, I don't know, but if you went out of your marriage, and now I ain't going to do it. <laughs> It may be, you know, maybe, you know, it may be John's prayer on Patmos. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we get to that point, but it takes a whole bunch of grace to work it out. You know, you're like looking in the sky. Ever have those days in your marriage? Nah, none of you people. Because you're not conscious enough long enough to know what's going on. Man, alive. Holy smokes. Yeah, hiss, I know. Two people go hiss, the rest are going... <laughs> that's life hey can I make a challenge for you a little suggestion uh oh oh homework like you remember when you went to school anyway here we go 
you know, you people are amazing, you know? Hit certain nerves and they wake up. Hey, if your marriage is going to survive, let me challenge you to do this. Take this word out of your vocabulary. Make a commitment right now. Never, ever, ever to use the word divorce. Thanks, brother. I don't care how bad things get. I don't care how heated things get. I don't care how frustrated you are. I don't care what needs aren't being met. But you eliminate the word divorce from your vocabulary. You never use it in, a, in an argument. You never use it in a moment of frustration. You never threaten another person with that word. You make a commitment right now to take that word out of your vocabulary. You know why? Because it does something to a marriage when you realize that your spouse is not looking for an out. It does something to a marriage when you realize that no matter what's going on, that you can count on that person to be there. It strengthens, it solidifies, it, it, it causes you to have the, the, the sense of desire to work through things. And it also destroys relationships when you hold that over someone's head that if they don't do what you want them to do and they don't jump through the hoops that you want them to jump through and they don't meet the needs that you have when you want them to be met and if somehow they don't live up to your expectations that you are threatened to walk out the door from them, it destroys that relationship as well. I mean, we saw it when I was working with the Rams. For five years, the Rams threatened, we're going to leave, we're going to leave, we're going to leave. And before you all know it, people get to the point where they say, don't let the door hit your butt when you leave. That's what happens in relationships. That's what happens in jobs. That's what happens all around us. We, I mean, let's face it. We live in a society that, you know what? The moment we don't get our way, we're looking for an out. You don't like what's going on at work. What do you do? I'm looking for another job. I can't stand working here. The moment you don't like what's going on around the house, the grass needs cut. It needs painted. I saw Apollo 13 last week and there was a scene where they had a party and it was time to clean up after the party and, the, and, the, and, the, and she looked at them and, and she looked at her husband and said, let's sell the house. <laughs> it's a great line. But that's the way we are, isn't it? Oh man, we've got to cut the grass, sell the house. Got to paint it, sell the house. Got to clean up, you know, sell the house. It's like we don't want to have to work through things. We see athletes, we see it happening all around us in society. It's like, I don't like what's going on. Trade me. Send me somewhere else where I'll be appreciated. We see it in churches, little you know, nitpicky stuff that goes on that we talked about. You know, that we don't have the grace to disagree agreeably, so we start nitpicking with one another. And the first thing we say is, I'm leaving if I don't get my way. I'll go somewhere where I'm appreciated. Somewhere where my gifts can be better used, they say. But the reality of it all is selfishness underneath all of it is, you know what, I got my rights and I want my way. And then we wonder why we've got a whole generation of young people who don't have a clue what discipline is all about, who don't have a clue what commitment is all about, who don't have a clue what loyalty is all about, and who don't know how to work through problems. And we look around and we point our fingers at young people when we should be looking at one another and saying, what's the problem? We as adults are the problem. When 50-some percent of every marriage in this country ends in divorce, we're teaching and we're yelling a very loud message. When things don't work out, find someone else. And then we wonder why they don't stick it out in school. We got friends that are going through a tough time, their, their kids are on sports teams, and you know what's amazing? It's like the first problem that comes up, the kid wants to quit now. Why? He doesn't even understand why, but the reality of it is that's what's being role modeled in front of him. 
We had a kid on one of our junior all-star teams in the city of Villa Park who it was like he couldn't play shortstop and they made him play second base, so he quit. What is happening here? You don't get your way, quit. That's what's happening. It's happening all around us. And they carry that same mentality into our marriages and we wonder what's wrong. Well, God says, I'll tell you what's wrong. You know what? Marriage is for a lifetime. Now, we've seen, and I, and I want to be fair here, because, hey, you know what? There may be a right time to leave a job. There may be a right time to sell a house. There may be a right time to make different changes in one's life. We've already seen that. God oftentimes leads us in those different directions. And so it's not to say that you never quit anything and do something else, but it is to say this. We need to examine ourselves to find out if the first time that we don't get our way is that the excuse that we're using to go do someone, something else. You know, when Paul and Barnabas split, I know it was after much prayer and after much deliberation, after much heartache. It wasn't the first thing that came to their mind. They tried to work it out, and they couldn't work it out. And so they understood that God was leading them in different directions. And they agreed to disagree, and they did it in an agreeable fashion. But let me tell you something. God, hold on and listen. God is not leading you out of your marriage. It is not God's will. God's will is marriage is forever. That's His will. And you got a problem understanding it, then get the tape and play it over and over again. <laughs> hey, that's why every ceremony says, but till death do us part. What does it take to stick out of marriage? What does it take to make it work? What does it take to resolve differences? What does it take to disagree agreeably? What does it take to forgive? What does it take to forget? It takes grace. And a whole bunch of it. You know what? And we need a lot more of it in a world that's filled with shallow commitments. In a world that lacks loyalty and discipline and stick to itness. We need a whole bunch more of it. Third marital reality. Now this is going to catch some of you off guard. But I want you to stick with me on this and just hear me out. Marital reality number three. 1 Corinthians 7, 26 through 28. We read this. But because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. There it is again. It's five times now. Are you unmarried? Then don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. Then if a virgin married, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Obviously, there was some distress that was going on at the church of Corinth. And he says, you know what? Under the present circumstances, with the things going on, it's probably not a real good time to get married. But if you can't control your sexual desires, it's better to marry than it is to burn with passion or lust. So the answer God has is, well, if that's your desire and you can't control that, then you better get married because that's pleasing to God. But he's like saying to them, yeah, you know what? In a war-torn country, probably isn't the best time to make wedding plans. There's a whole bunch of change going on. There's, there's strife going on. It's not a good time to get married. But he's saying that even if you choose to get married in the light of the most devastating circumstances that are taking place on the face of the earth, then that's okay because that's not a sin. That's your choice. But he's saying what I want you to understand and understand very clearly, that is when you do get married, there will be times of many troubles. Remember Gomer Powell? I mean, I was reading this and the first thing God reminded me of Gomer Powell saying, Shazam, Shazam, Shazam. I'm thinking, surprise, surprise, surprise. Now, you know what I mean? Because it amazes me the number of marriages that fall apart because difficulties take place in a relationship. Oh, 
we're having a tough time. Shazam, shazam, shazam. Man, you know? You know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, it's just, that's the way that it is. Marriages will produce tough times. They'll be facing many troubles in this life. The New American Standard says that those who get married such will have trouble. You know, what's amazing to me is that we don't think that we're going to. And then when we do, it's like, that's my reason, because this must not be God's will. Because God's will would be that we wouldn't have any trouble when we got married. Everything would be great. Hey, God warns us in Matthew 6, hey, don't worry about tomorrow, because each day, what, has enough trouble of its own. This world's filled with trouble. And marriage is just one other place that it takes place. It's going to happen. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you know what, I find my knight in shining armor. Well, you wait till that guy takes that armor off. You know what I'm saying? And you see this skinny, scrawny little guy that's been hiding behind all that armor. And he leaves his dirty underwear on the floor for the first time. And the toilet seat up. You'd be like, what happened? You know what? And I know some of you guys are thinking, you know what? You find the perfect blend. You got Wonder Woman, Mother Teresa, Betty Crocker, Cindy Crawford. She's all rolled up into one beautiful package. But you wait until you see her in the morning before she puts makeup on. Or until she burps for the first time in front of you. Seriously. And you know what? And I don't even know why you're surprised by it. Because all the time you've been dating, all those years, she's been saving up one big old burp. She hadn't been able to burp in front of you for years that you've been dating. And then you get married and it's all of a sudden it's like the Coca-Cola. And then you look like, or she does that Linda Blair imitation in The Exorcist. And her head spins around and all of a sudden volcanic ashes spewing out of her mouth. And you look at yourself, you shudder, you pinch yourself and go, what happened? What happened here? What happened was you got married. I like there's an old saying, it says that marriage comes with three rings. First there's the engagement ring, then there's the wedding ring, and then there's what? The suffering. That's right. I like, I like going, yeah, I heard this gal, she said, you know what? She said, I've been married seven years. I've been married seven years. It's amazing how time goes so fast when you're driving somebody else crazy. That's just the way it is. We're different. I like it. I did a wedding once, you know, and, and, the, and the groom said, I do. And the bride looked over and said, why'd you say it like that? Nah, it's good. Yeah, maybe I exaggerated a little bit, but, but you know, I don't want to come across like Ebenezer Scrooge of marriage, but the reality of all of it is, you know what? It requires grace to stay married in times of trouble. Think about it. There's going to be illness. There's going to be disease. Some of them serious. Some of them not so serious. Some of you guys know you got that Dunlap disease working for you. You know, when your belly done laps over your belt, you got that going. Got that chest of drawers disease, you know, when your chest falls down into your drawers. I mean, these things take place over a period of time now. So we know what we're talking about. You know, but then there's the serious stuff you got to deal with, right? I mean, we got to deal with menopause. You got to deal with PMS. You got to deal with all these things. The guys don't have a clue. You got to deal with the whole retaining water and stuff like that. It's like, you know, sometimes I think, you know, we'll get you all together. We'll put out a big brush fire, you know? It's like, but those are, those are, I mean, those are things, hey, now, hey, oh, 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 the Dunlap disease was hilarious, huh? You loved that one. Hey, it goes both ways here now. You're always sensitive to balance these things out, always sensitive. 
You know, you're going to have trouble with your children from trying to conceive them to trying to get rid of them. I mean, you know, there's a whole range of stuff going on there. You know, and that's the way that it is. You don't even believe some of this stuff's happening to you. It's like, how is this happening? Some of them are funny, but you know what? Some of them aren't. You know, and we need to understand that. And we need to recognize the fact that you're going to have calamity. You're going to have differing viewpoints about time, temperature, and, and trips, and whether you should stop for directions or you shouldn't. Whether, you know, and in God's, you know, God's will, you keep going until you run out of gas. I mean, that's just the way that it is. You know, that's just, I mean, guys are like that. I mean, we're not going to, you know, and they'll be arguing the whole time. You need to stop and get directions. Now, I know where I am. Where are you? Right here. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know, and, and that's all part of what's going on around us. And, and you got work pressures, financial trouble. You got problems with the in-laws who sometimes become outlaws. I mean, you got all this stuff going on. But you need grace to accept and endure and to forgive and to forget. You need grace to laugh things off. You really do. You need grace to be able to say to your spouse in times of trouble, no matter what it is, you know what, honey? It's okay, because we're going to get through this together. It takes grace to be able to do that. Grace, because of times of trouble, and we're going to have them when we're married. So just because you're having them doesn't mean you shouldn't be married anymore. It means you need to turn to God, who will amply supply all the grace that you need, because His grace is sufficient for you. And we need to recognize that. I mean, we argue about everything. We try to figure out those differences. And you know what? It, you're not going to figure them out. You know, the, the, Linda's always cold and I'm always hot. And I try for years to figure out why. You know, it's like just get one of those electric heating blankets that have a divider down the middle and you've got two separate controls. And it's great because when there's grace in a relationship, you know what happens? I mean, she could put it on and turn up the heat and not, and not fry me. And I can lay above it and just have the air conditioner running all that I want. And then this condensation and clouds form in the bedroom. And it starts to rain. But, I mean, those things happen. And it's like, and then when she wears out her side, you know what you can do? You just flip it over and give her a new side. It's great. So grace not only mends relationships, but it can save you a whole bunch of money. But that's what we need to understand. Grace. Grace is what this is all about. Grace. We need more of it, don't you think? And next week we'll take a look at the last reality that will have to do with the differences between men and men, women. And that's the grace that's needed to face the marital reality that, you know what, there are distinct roles in the Word of God for wives and there are distinct roles for husbands. And that takes a whole bunch of grace to deal with too. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for this time to be together. A time to learn from you, a time to enjoy your Word, a time just to have fun with one another and yet not to minimize the seriousness of the things that we learn. God, help us to understand that, that uh, a marital reality that we need to face is to be unselfish with one another, to be committed to meeting one another's needs and to communicate those needs. God, help us to understand that that's what grace is all about. God, help us to understand that grace involves so many areas of our life that we never thought were applicable. God, help us to realize that marriage is a lifetime commitment and to take the word divorce right out of our vocabulary, to learn to stick to it, to turn to you for help and guidance and grace to reduce the friction in our marriage. God, help us to understand that, you know what, your grace is sufficient for us because it's in our weakness that we can find your strength. God, help us to become men and women who are as gracious behind the scenes with our spouse as we are in public with one another. 
and help us to realize that marriage includes times of trouble and that it's a testing of our faith. Know that the testing of our faith produces endurance and that endurance has its perfect results, that we will be perfect and complete in our faith. And we can consider that all joy when we fall into it because we know that's part of the plan of God. And we just thank you and praise you for your amazing grace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.